Kings dodge an early bullet. Here comes Tyler Toffoli out of the zone with Kempe. Some speed for Kempe. Wait, shoots, scores! You're listening to All the Kings Men, the official podcast of the Los Angeles Kings. There he goes after the puck. Anderson Dolan against Xavier Wallet. Kings able to come away cleanly with it, but again, still battling down low. And it's Anderson Dolan to Amadio. He scores! Now, here's your host, Jesse Cohen. Welcome back, Kings fans. My name is Jesse Cohen. This is All the Kings Men. Uh, Montreal wanted to remind their fans of the last Stanley Cup win they ever had, and the Kings reminded them that they've got a long way to go before they win the next one. Jack Campbell gets his first career shutout. Jared Anderson Dolan gets his first career point. Kempe scores. Carter scores. Smiles all around. Uh, But don't think that we are not going to get into the power play issues or the fact that they are getting badly outshot in every game. We will. Just not today. Joining me now for another installment of This Week in Kings History, Mike Comito. How are you doing today, Mike? Doing fantastic, Jesse. We're going to do a little thing uh, that I like to call Bob Week here uh, yes. at All the Kings Men. We uh, It's another early week in the season, so there are tons of debuts um, that we could focus on, um, obviously. But I'm going to focus on, as I mentioned before, a, couple, a pair of Bobs that played yeah. big, big roles in Kings history. I want to start out with Bob Miller. Um, October 10th, 1973, Bob Miller calls his first game for the LA Kings. What can you tell us about that game? Yeah. So Bob calls his first game. Um, again, as we know that he goes on to, you know, to call them for the next 44 years. And so again, as we become synonymous, you know, the voice of the LA Kings, uh, but it's, but it's interesting to go back because again, uh, the thing that I like about this, it's not so much, you know, the game that he calls, uh, it's the fact that, you know, he almost, uh, you know, he he could have he should have started the job about a year earlier, right? But mm-hmm. again, he was he was he was set to replace uh, Jiggs McDonald, uh, and he was going to be uh, you know the new voice. Uh, Chick Hearn had said that you know you're going to be my guy, but ultimately, you know Jack Kent Cook overrode that decision and ended up going with somebody else. And so you know during the course of that that year when it, it should have been Miller, you know he was back and he was announcing he was calling games to the University of Wisconsin, but he kept sending the Kings tapes. You know, and then finally, uh, you know, in the summer of 1973, he was also offered to do play-by-play uh, for the Penguins, uh, but he opted to go to L.A. And I, I love the quote because he said that you know he opted to sign his 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 contract for uh, what at the time was for 22 grand, uh, but more importantly than the money uh, was to go bask in the sun out in L.A., which uh, which he certainly did. But but that game, um, you know, it wasn't uh, it obviously wasn't great for the Kings. It was a three nothing loss to the Blackhawks, which uh, you know, was Miller's hometown team. Um, so certainly, I'm sure he was, you know, excited to call that, make that uh, his Kings debut with his hometown Blackhawks, but but not the result that the Kings would have wanted on the board. He he had plenty of disappointing nights over the years, <laughs> but um, <laughs> yeah. but but ultimately did get to see the to the Kings win the cup twice. So that so that's fine. He his relationship with Jack Kent Cook. If anybody has an opportunity to uh, either listen to any of the stories that Bob Miller has recorded. Um, either for the Kings or for a documentary somebody made or read, you know, either of his books. Um, Jack Hancock was a lunatic. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and, and there are tons and tons of stories of the, of the pair. Um, I don't want to say butting heads, but of, of advice, let's call it, coming from Jack Hancock to Bob Miller. Yeah, I, I think that they had some pretty good battles over the years. And again, you, if you go back, and, and Miller's pretty candid about some of those some of those stories. One that you know that I always that I chuckle at was I guess there was one time when Miller told a joke on air, um, and and 
Cook had scolded him afterwards. And I guess the quote that he said to him was, uh, dear boy, do you know who my neighbor is? He said, he's Jerry Lewis and he has 14 comedy writers. You have none. Don't try to be funny. Uh, so that's just one example, you know, of, of the battles they would have had over the years. <laughs> Ultimately, you know, Miller vowed to, you know, to announce the, the games his own way, you know, even if that meant, you know, brushing up against Cook. Um, and I think another great quote that kind of describes, you know, the, the dynamic together was that he worked for Cook for six years and he said he only survived it because Cook was out of town for four of those six years. <laughs> I mean, honestly, if if you haven't yet read either of those books or heard uh, either of those, and actually we've got um, the Bob Miller 25th anniversary special. Is, it's, I think it's still available in the archives uh, at lakings.com slash podcast. If not, go ahead and, and if you want to hear that, Kings fans, you can send me a DM on Twitter or send me an email Kingsman podcast, gmail.com. I'll try and see if I can't get you uh, the audio from that, but it's a, an audio tape they put out uh, to celebrate Bob Miller's 25th season with the Kings. And there are mm-hmm. a ton of Jack Kent cook stories and a ton of good stuff yeah. on, on Bob Miller. Um, let's move to the second Bob in the week of Bob's. And that is uh left wing Bob Barry. What can you tell us about Bob Barry's time with the LA Kings, Mike? So uh, Bob Barry was an interesting character, and I guess I kind of wanted just to touch on this before we talked about his time with the Kings, is because this was something I didn't know until you know I did a little bit of research on him. Mm-hmm. Was that like before before joining the Kings, he was an all around athlete. So I knew that obviously he had his start in hockey. He was actually uh, you know with the Canadians organization before he joined the Kings, but he had actually also played. Uh, football and he actually was also quite the baseball player in his day and he even attended uh, Houston Astros tryout camp uh, once upon a time and you know for him he said that he never regretted turning his efforts full-time to hockey you know he really enjoyed baseball but because you know he was he was living up in Canada he was a Canadian you know baseball season at that time was was really only three months because of the weather and at that point you know we didn't really have uh, you know any development programs especially in the in the high school or college level so playing you know, baseball, there's really no place to develop in Canada. So obviously, you know, as an all-around athlete, though, he set his sights on, you know, becoming a hockey player, and that worked out well for him. Uh, but I guess, unfortunately, unfortunately, he was, you know, part of the Canadians organization, which, you know, at the time in the in the early 70s was, was a, a veritable powerhouse. So again, at left wing, the Canadians were stacked. Uh, you know, they had a bunch of Hall of Famers uh, mm-hmm. down that side with Dick Duff, John Ferguson, Jacques Lemaire, and, and Gilles Tremblay. So there really wasn't a place for him you know, at the NHL level. And so it was the, the Kings, you know, decided to, they bought bought his rights, brought him to camp uh, for a look-see, and ultimately it was something that uh, that Larry Regan, they liked his game. Um, and so ultimately he he joins, he makes a team, and he, he's really white-hot out of the gate. Uh, he scores two goals in his debut against the Canucks, which was actually the first NHL game, uh, regular season game played in Vancouver. Uh, and during the course of those first few games, you know, he scores eight points in his first five games as a King and then goes on to have an incredible season, uh, racking up 63 points in 73 games. He almost uh, wins the Calder uh, that year. He's one of those players that I think, you know, maybe your average Kings fan has never heard of, or, you know, even somebody like me, right? I, I had heard of him, but if you had put a gun to my head and said, you know, read me Bob Barry's resume, I, you know, I, I couldn't have done it, and I couldn't have told you how important he was um, to the Kings. But he wasn't just a player for the Kings, correct? Yeah, so after after he uh, you know retired from from professional hockey, you know he became the Kings' eighth head coach uh, in franchise history. And I think what uh, you know again, if you're not familiar with the work that he done behind, did behind the bench with the Kings, I think another uh, you know his his big claim to fame as the Kings' uh, bench boss was you know he's credited with putting the triple crown line together, which was uh, you know Dave Taylor, Marcel Dion, and and, and, and Charlie Simmer. So again, he puts his 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 spin on that, and obviously that you know goes on to become one of the most prolific lines uh, in NHL history. Uh, and then after you know his time with the Kings, he has some success behind the bench, but he goes on to coach his hometown Canadians. 
I has a few more stints in Pittsburgh and St. Louis, but ultimately I think what kind of brings that story full circle too is his last coaching stop in the NHL. Uh, he's an assistant with the Sharks where he is the assistant to none other than uh, Daryl Darryl Sutter. There you go. Another, another cameo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, it's it always amazes me what a small world hockey is. You know, I, I I don't know. Maybe I've just gotten used to the idea of it being this big sprawling thirty-one team league. But man, it's just it's really really a small hockey world. Um, now I'm gonna have that song stuck in my head for the rest of the week. Uh, anyway, Mike, I want to thank you for joining me as always. My pleasure. Thank you. And uh, before we let you go, why don't you go ahead and give your book another plug? Yeah, sure. So Hockey 365, it came out uh, in the U.S. last week. It was temporarily unavailable on, on Amazon and Barnes & Noble, but I think they've restocked. So if you want to uh, check that out, it's it's 365 short hockey history stories, one for every day of the year. Uh, there's plenty of Kings history moments in there as well. So again, I, uh, I try to spread out the ice time, but there are a, quite a few King stories, which speaking of King stories, also, if you haven't checked it out, you should check out uh, my latest story for the for the Kings on the Kings website. I uh, I had the chance to talk to uh, Bernie Nichols and, and Steve Deshane, and also had the the chance to get uh, some questions to Luke Robitaille to revisit this iconic photo of them at Venice Beach in 1989. And so it's a, it's a fun little story that looks back on this iconic picture. And so again, go go have a look if you'd like. Uh, it is a pretty cool photo. It's a great photo. You posted it earlier. Uh, in the summer, and I couldn't believe that I hadn't seen it, or if I had, I didn't remember it. Um, it's fantastic. So uh, thanks again, Mike. We'll talk to you next week. Sounds good. Talk to you then. Joining me now, freelance sports photographer Josh Lavalley. How you doing, Josh? Good, Jesse. Thanks for having me on the podcast, man. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Um, I've seen some of your photos. I mean, obviously, you know, I've you and I have talked about them, but I, I met you at a Kings game recently, and I was sort of fascinated because, you know, we live in an era now where so many <laughs> images are taken, right? But with digital film, there's no sure. there's no sort of limit on it. Um, the images are everywhere. So I, I was sort of curious how you got into it. So let's start with where did you grow up? Yeah, I'm, uh, I was born and raised in uh, Ranch Cucamonga, California, which um, I'm sure you might know and maybe some of your listeners yeah. are. It's about 45 minutes east of L.A., um, so I'm kind of tucked into the to the more of the suburbs of Southern California. You know, I'm close enough to go surfing and snowboarding in the same day kind of thing. <laughs> so um, growing up in, in that area kind of influenced me in, in sports especially just because obviously we're being able to play sports year round. And so, um, yeah, I think just being a kid from the IE, um, is obviously a little different than being a kid from LA or from uh, the West side of, of the Valley, that kind of thing. But, um, I think it kind of, uh, developed me into obviously the person I am. So I'm very much a person of like, I'll try anything. So, being where I'm at, we're kind of how able to be exposed to anything. That's kind of how I am. So, yeah. Did, did you have any? Uh, did you have any exposure to hockey growing up, or was that something you you discovered later? I, I probably I can remember my first game. My dad took me to uh, a Rangers Ducks game back when uh, Gretzky was still on the Rangers. Oh wow! And okay. Having a, <laughs> I wasn't yeah, expecting having that. A, yeah, having a dad. 
um, who's actually from Montreal, um, who's a big hockey fan. Who in the in back in the day, he was actually an intern for the Kings um, in the in the press world. He was the one who would run down to the you know run down to the visitor or home locker room and get a quote for the reporters to come back up and basically deliver the quote to them so that they could write their stories. So my dad was did that. So he had a little bit, that's where like, I think his love came, especially for the King. Um, but having the background, as you know, as a father who's from Montreal where, you know, the homeland of hockey, um, that was basically just passed right into me. And, and I've been a hockey fan ever since I was nine years old. Yeah, so, my my dad was a was born and raised in Ottawa, so it was the same situation. He was a okay. huge Habs fan growing up. So, at what point did you discover photography? I mean, I think every kid, or maybe this was just my experience growing up in Southern California, but it felt like everybody had that moment where they were like, "Oh yeah, I'll be a photographer someday." Um, but I think we yeah. all I think we all sort of grow out of it really quickly. What what was it about photography that that stuck with you, and when did you know you wanted to make a push for it as a career? I mean, to go back to like how it all started was I wanted to be work. I wanted to work in film. I wanted to be a movie director. I wanted to create feature films or documentaries and those types of things. So that's kind of how the the love for you know framing and and light exposure and all of that and like figuring out how to you know manipulate images and things like that to create you know a project or a finished piece like like a film. That's kind of where it all started i went to school i was lucky enough to play uh you know i play i got i got a soccer scholarship to be able to play at quinnipiac university in, in connecticut which is also another hockey powerhouse school so it's kind of i can't get away from hockey kind of thing <laughs> but um I, I went there for film i played soccer i ended up tearing meniscus in my knee and and, and it kind of forced me back into a corner being that i thought i was going to be able to be good enough to try and go pro and so I had to kind of be really real with myself and be like, what do I want to do with my life? So I came back and I just started working in the film industry right away. And I got a job and I was doing well. And after a while, I just kind of felt it wasn't for me. So I ended up leaving that, not having another job and again, put myself into another corner. And lucky for me, I have really good friends who are pretty honest and open with me about like what I'm what I'm good at. Cause I'm pretty tough on myself. And one of my best friends said, Hey man, you should just start shooting weddings. And I was like, okay, but I don't have the means or the funds to do it. You know, he's like, don't worry about it. I'll fund it. Wow, so that is a good friend. The money. Yeah. He funds me the money. I take the camera and I've been running ever since. And so I started shooting weddings as a videographer and a photographer kind of thing. And then it just kind of blossomed into other stuff. And I started with, you know, I mean, just for any other photographers listening who might be inspired by it or whatever, you know, you're going to start, you can't, ima I, I assumed I was going to be able to shoot pro hockey or pro sports like right away. Cause I, I thought I was that good. Mm -hmm. you, sh you shooting high school minor league stuff. Like that is where you're going to learn the most from all of that. Like being able to anticipate plays is the biggest curve in, in that in the sports photography world that you that you can learn being able to know where everything's going to happen so, so that's interesting about way of... sorry i'm sorry to jump in there but that's you no, you, ra you raise an no, interest uh, an interesting question 
anticipation, you know, I, I was going to ask you, you know, how much does having a natural eye for composition play into it? But then, you know, if you're doing wedding, you know, photographs, I'm assuming that you can move people or, or stage things. But, but I wonder if in doing things like weddings, you, you began to get a sense of anticipating a moment, whether it's, you know, the first kiss yeah. or the first dance or, you know, somebody about yeah. to shove cake in somebody's face or, or any of those things. Does that, yeah. <laughs> does that lead into the sort of anticipation you need to do sports photography? I think, I think they work one in the same. Uh, I mean, not to put the same onus as like, you know, you know, uh, anticipating a one-timer from Drew Doughty or, <laughs> you know, when, when Kopitar is going to toe drag a guy or something like that, you know, or, or any kind of, unbelievable stretch save that Jonathan quick has, but it, it does work for me as my own style as photographer. When I do shoot things that aren't necessarily sports, like I'm not afraid, like you said, it's a digital era. There's there's photos everywhere. There's not film. It, it is an era of, of kind of where anybody and everybody can pick up a camera and take a photo and take a, you could take a good photo it just really separates those who can do it consistently and make great images over and over and over again that really separate the pros from anybody who is an amateur or who has, you know, cause everybody has a nice camera in their hand. It's in right. their phone. Right. So separating yourself from the crowd is kind of what makes us professional photographers and being, being back to the sports, the wedding thing, anticipation is for me like the biggest thing. And I have no problem like, like spreading, you know, 15, 16, 17 photos on one instance, because I'm really only going to take maybe two or three moments in that burst of photos. But if I didn't do that, I'd miss it. Or it'd have to be so on point that I might have not been on the right timing for my frames or whatever. So for me, I know I, I like to, I don't have a problem overshooting something, but I think they work one in the same sports helps me with weddings, anticipating and not being able to miss anything while weddings give me the composition and some of the different framings that I might not have learned just doing sports. So let's talk about the path. If that makes sense. You no, know, a hundred percent. Let's talk about the path yeah. you mentioned because you know, that's, one of the things that I think a lot of people never consider is, is how many hours you'll have to put into, you know, Malcolm Gladwell always talks about his 10,000 hours or shouldn't say always, but is always referenced <coughs> as, right. as introducing the idea of putting 10,000 hours into it. So how did you go from, you know, shooting weddings uh, with the camera you bought thanks to your friend to shooting pictures for the LA Kings? You know, did you start at the high school level? Did you submit to a local paper? What's that? What's that career path? I, I kind of was able to use my in already. So I had, I had also at the same time as the, the photo things that happened with weddings and those things, I had taken camera operating jobs with the angels and the, and the Anaheim ducks actually okay. at the time. So me having a foothold in, in pro organizations and me having to shoot and like, you know, I'm still learning at this time, but I, I have, I have the knack of, of knowing kind of what's going to happen, you know, especially in baseball, it's all, um, you know, it's all really situational. So 
you know, it's a two, one count runner on second, like what's the pitch going to be, or where do you think it's going to be hit? Those types of things. I was able to kind of understand the game in that situation to know where it's going to be. So that kind of helped me again, get to where I'm at. But um, I happened to have some connections with other people. And I actually, how I got with the Kings and everything was um, a, a friend of mine who I worked with at the ducks, her husband was the um, game operations person with the Ontario rain and me living in Shukamonga, which is, no more than maybe five, <laughs> 10 minutes from yep. Ontario and being super close to where the rain play and citizens business bank. And they had just moved the AHL team from Manchester to Ontario. So it was kind of a perfect storm when all this happened, but they needed a, they needed a coach's camera up. And basically my only role was to, to video and record the game for the coaches that was going to be transmitted right into the room so they can make, you know, mid intermission adjustments and look over film. And that was basically my job. Well, having, you know, the knack to, to just be kind of a people person and make connections and, and so forth, so on and so forth, I ended up talking to him and he said, we didn't, we didn't have a videographer. So I was like, hey, I'll do it. And then some other situations happened to where the, pho- the photographer had to leave. So actually the year that I ended up getting, I ended up getting promoted to be a team photographer that, that year. But that year I was literally shooting both video and photo in the same games and making pump videos and pumping out social media photos and doing all kinds of stuff. So I was kind of just thrown in, you know, sink or swim and it being a minor league team, I think they were able to take a little, they were, they were allowed or or willing to take a little bit more of a risk Mm -hmm. with how that kind of would play out. You know, if it worked out, it worked out. If it didn't, it didn't kind of a thing which gave me kind of the freedom to try different stuff and eventually propel my, my, you know, my, my style or how, whatever and so forth. But just to go off topic a little bit on that, what was another thing that was funny about that situation was, and this is kind of cool for me and my, my dad, my dad and my brother, excuse me. So after I left the coaching position job and now I'm the team photographer job, they needed two other camera guys. My brother does camera operating just like me. So my brother was already in there. He was doing the other one. And my dad used to be back in the day. He used to work for NBC and did like Wheel of Fortune camera operating and did news things and stuff like that. And so I went to my dad, him being from Montreal, like I had mentioned, and hockey fan. I said, hey, dad, do you want to make a couple extra hundred bucks during the week? And he was like, sure, what am I doing? I was like, you're going to be a camera operator for the Ontario Rain. And he was like, sounds good. <laughs> so literally during that time frame, I was on the ice taking photos. My brother was up top doing video for coaches camp. My dad was on the other end doing stuff for scouting. So at one point, all three of the Valley men in the family were all at Citizens Business Bank working. So, you're, uh, you're like the so Howe family of, uh, of hockey photography. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah. So it was, uh, it was kind of wild, but it was definitely a cool moment that, and, and the funny thing is now I've moved on to other things and they're still there. They're still doing it, cranking it out. So yeah. That's pretty, great. Pretty cool little, little family moment. Yeah. So now I see you at Staples Center. You're taking King's photos. Um, you had a, a beautiful shot of Jonathan Quick in a spotlight um, on the ice, you know, with his net and, you know, it's blacked out all around. What time do you show yeah, up for uh, for a game? So typically I try and get there. Um, I like to be early. Some, some photographers, it, I, I think just over time, 
you you kind of figure out your your time frame but i like to be there an hour and a half to two hours um it just gives me time to kind of plan out what i want to do and where i want to be um for the day and especially because i i shoot for icon sports wire too and they happen to just be one of the you know they're on the lower end of the totem pole when it comes to kind of uh wire service photography services you know you got getty they're typically at the top associated press uh usa today and then you know obviously you have the team photographer which you know for the for the kings it's it's bernstein and and his whole group so me being kind of the low man on the total pole, i have to be kind of more a little bit more creative and and willing to adapt to where i'm at so i like to get there early just to set myself up usually get some food um just kind of hang out get ready to go and then um you know, so on a, any typical like hockey day, um, I'm probably there. Uh, game starts at 7:30. I'm probably there at 5:30, 6 o'clock. And you know, sometimes I don't leave until 11:30 if the game ends at you know 9:30, 10 o'clock. So just depends. It's it's the life of a, of a photographer. You just kind of are at the mercy of what you can get and and how long it takes you to get everything out that you need to finish. So. Where where do you do you have a, a spot that you prefer to be set up in? Is there is there one location that you find uh, gives the the best results at, at a hockey game? I mean, it, it all. I mean, hockey you can't really predict like when and what's going to happen. I think that's why I love sports so much, is because at each game is it, it might be the same scoring outcome, but none of the same moments really happen. There's nothing that feels the same. You know, same thing with baseball. I know baseball gets a bad rap for how long it is, but um, it's kind of the same situation. So for me, it's kind of just what you're able to get with the spot you're, you're in. I mean, you could be on one side of the ice where nothing happens, and on the other side of the ice, everything happens. You know, that's just the nature of the beast. So typically, I mean, if the opportunity is there, I'd love to be on the, on the glass in one of the corners. You know, when you're able to be – we're able as photographers to kind of have one of the best seats in the house where basically our eyes and everything is looking through the glass into the actual playing surface. So we're kind of part of it sometimes. Uh, I mean, you can find videos on YouTube of photographers, cameras getting broken or anything like that. But um, I really think it's, it's, it's just the nature of the beast. You kind of, you get lucky sometimes you, you don't get lucky other times. So, I don't think there's a specific spot that I like truly love, but each spot kind of lends itself to your, your shot. You're kind of, like I said, you're at the mercy of the game. I got you. Well, look, Josh, I want to thank you very yeah. much for joining me. Yeah. Thanks Jesse. I appreciate it, man. We'll see you at Staples center.